This is a production of Cornell University. This is episode two, season three of the Cornell Turf Show. Uh, today, Frank and I are going to talk about uh, lawn and landscape. Uh, unfortunately, we couldn't get Art de Gaetano today, so you'll have to uh, bear with us. The amateur uh, meteorologists here will give you a little bit of weather roundup, but no art today. Um, but anyway, Frank, it's a beautiful, like, looks like a spring day here in Ithaca, New York. I'll hand it over to you. What, do you. what are you thinking here early in the season? Are we ready to we were ready to start doing things to the turf? Well, Carl, you know, first off, it's so great to be back, right? It's so great to be back doing this stuff as, you know, people who get involved outside and spend their lives working with land. Uh, the, the breaking of cabin fever in the spring, uh, there's very few things that match that. I think everything means a little bit more when you don't see it for a while. So I think that's where we are. And in the background here, you have some of our great pal Dan Scheid here, the director of grounds at Cornell, some of his great work, uh, some of the artwork that they did, some of the adaptations they made to get kids outside uh, during the pandemic. So uh, I don't have to tell you, that's what this was all about when Carl and I started it. Um, I think yesterday we said we were just like talking out into the ethos because we just wanted to say stuff, but I really felt like it was a small way for us to contribute. And you know, it turns out over time, we've significantly generated uh, an enormous amount of uh, copy. In fact, Carl, I was thinking the other day, I need to get a film student to come in and just chop this thing up. And we need a, you know, annual greatest hits. I mean, you go to the YouTube thing and all you see is you and I with our mouths open. It's absolutely hysterical. Uh, if you told people what we were doing, no one would actually believe it. Yeah. So it's so great to be out again uh, back in uh uh, end of February, early March, early month, I was out in Denver, Colorado at the National IPM Conference. And I was there with my masked up colleagues from the New York State IPM program, Jody Gangloff Kaufman, who directs the community IPM program, Matt Fry in the community IPM program, works out of the Hudson Valley. Alejandro is the new director of the New York State IPM program, uh, taken over for the retired Jennifer Grant. And my hallmate, our hallmate, Carl, uh, Elizabeth Betsy Lamb there on the end, uh, does nurseries and greenhouses with another pal of ours, uh, Brian Eschenauer. And, and it's so refreshing uh, to get out. This is back, you know, again, when we were still in masks inside. Uh, and now even at Cornell, except for classrooms, we're out of masks uh, in the buildings again. So hopefully, uh, you know, cross your fingers, uh, you know, you see there's another uh, variant going around Europe again. And, you know, that's not going to take much time to get here, but hopefully maybe the vax, the vaccines and the immunity that exists in the community will, you know, help us with that. So nevertheless, here's my pal, Carl. Uh, Carl won the New York State Amateur this past fall. I'm going to embarrass him to no end. Uh, it's so great having a student, a former student athlete now uh, making his way back into golf and of course, everybody knows he's not an amateur. He got paid to do this at one point. Now he's just weaseling around. And I hear he's influencing when tournaments can be played. So we'll take that up at another time. But for Carl, Carl, let me give you a chance to give us our lawn stat of the day. Yeah, so we've been doing this, Frank. We do a BMP tip of the day for our golf webinars on Thursday. And figured we want to do something here on Friday, too. So so coming up with these stats, uh, was just poking around and saw this recent um, uh, report out of Rutgers looking at the extent of turf grass in that state. Uh, and this data from 2019 says that turf grass makes up 20% of the land area in New Jersey. And, and listen, I've driven through New Jersey. It, it, 
it's not, it doesn't strike you as 20% turf. But again, when we're looking at these big areas, a fifth of the state is, is turf grass. And if you dig down even further into that, 75% of all turf is household lawn. So that means 15% uh, of the state is covered in household lawn turf. Almost a million acres of turf in New Jersey. Uh, that's, that's gone up 8% in the last 20 years. Uh, the last time we did this sort of survey in New York was 2003. We assumed the same sort of increase in, in turf grass. We'd have somewhere around 3.7 million acres in our state here now, 12%-ish uh, of the land area. So just putting in perspective, you know, the things we're talking about, I know it can seem small, a 2,500 square foot lawn or something like that, but man, this is a lot of area that makes up our, our Northeast region. And again, Carl, you're from Jersey, so you know, you, you got family in Jersey, so you know uh, <laughs> the perception that many people have, uh, yeah. particularly listeners not from around here, people not from the Northeast. They don't actually call it the Garden State for nothing. I mean, once you get <laughs> out of that New York metropolitan area, it actually is one of the great hidden gem states of, of, uh, of this country. And, and of course, as a New Yorker, it's, they're just great fodder for making fun of. So all, and of course, half the guests on this show, Carl, are from Jersey That's and correct, yeah. are probably never going to come on anymore. Anyway, so let me get to the weather. And this is the way we described it uh, yesterday to our golf guys. And it's the way we've been hearing from the people in the field, you know, the ups and downs. And of course, the thing you got to remember, even though it's ups and downs, we're having less winter, right? If you characterize winter as, you know, when our stuff doesn't grow very well, right? Uh, you basically look for the between the frost-free dates. When, when are you uh, literally between the average frost dates? And we're getting uh, 10 more days here uh, in the Northeast. And of course you see across the country, except for the Southeast. And it's very interesting. Take this up. The Southeast continues to be one of the coolest regions in the entire United States. Now, again, just looking at this, uh, we had the you know top 5% warmest uh, fall period from September to November. Uh, and in fact, when you looked at the minimum temperature, a really good signal of the warming world, you see that the minimum temperatures, the, the, the height of the warmth of the minimum temperatures was the greatest it's ever been right? That is 127. That meant it's the warmest period in the history of weather record keeping for the minimum temperature. And that seems like an obscure stat. But then December came along and it kept staying warm. We stayed in the top 5%. In fact, when you look across the country, you see everybody was warm. It was in fact, overall, the warmest December in the history of weather record keeping for the continental United States, even though, you know, folks in the Pacific Northwest and the North Central States, uh, Northern West States, the Prairie States West of the Mississippi, um, we're actually on the normal side. Okay, let's take a dive. And it got pretty cold. January was among uh, the coldest we've had in the top 20, 30% of the coldest periods we've had. And then we back on the roller coaster and it's warm again in February. So uh, we clearly have had this up and down uh, period that's sort of played havoc uh, a bit with the growing season, uh, the winter time and the transition to spring. Now, when you look at the uh, average temperatures that we're supposed to be getting in March, right? This is the 30 year near normal mean temperatures for March, right? 30 years over a 30 year period, right? 
basically we should be in the upper 30s to low 40s to the uh, low 20s, right? Up in the northernmost regions of the northeastern states, right? That's, that's our mean temperature, right? The average temperature that we normally are going to get, right? Oh, let me get my, let me get my slides there. There we go. And so when we think about temperature and we think about what March is going to be like, let's, I mean, we're getting temperatures pretty routinely now in the 50s, but just keep in mind, even if we're in the 50s and we're growing cool season turf, let me get my pens. We did this pretty good last year, Bob, right? Even if we're growing cool season turf, right? And it's 50 degrees, right? We're only at about 20% of the potential for that grass to get going. So I'm not going to necessarily tell you to go out and fertilize. You're way ahead of where you're going to see anything. Now, this is the air temperature. It's not a complete assessment of what's going on, right? And it's looking like the national eight to 14 day outlook is telling us near normal, but our Northeast Climate Center uh, predictions are indicating it's likely to be warmer over that period uh, into the 30th of March. So the season is starting to accelerate. We're starting to accumulate growing degree days, right? Base 50 growing degree days. You can see that really tight demarcation right across central Pennsylvania, the metropolitan New York area, Long Island. You see, you know, 10 to 15 base 50 growing degree days. That means we're going to have, you know, uh, you know, 10 day, you know, 10 periods of time when it's going to be more than that. The average temperature minus the 50 for the day. How many do you accumulate that day? So you're talking about one or two a day. So you're talking about 52, 53 degrees for an average temperature uh, over the course of a five-day period. So, you know, we're going to get, we're going to be in the 50s. But you look down south into Delmarva, into Delaware, and you really start to see the growing degree they start to accumulate. Now, the thing that's fascinating about this, and I brought this up a minute ago, where that south, uh, the southeast is, is really slow. Now, of course, we're not growing grass in the southeast. But this is the National Plant Networks, National Phenology Networks, Spring Leaf Index, right? The anomaly. Is it ahead or behind normal? And what you see is just like the degree days are indicating that you're getting this really warm section here, right in the mid-Atlantic and Delmarva. And then, of course, even in, the, even in the higher elevations, it's pretty warm. But then you see this cool period, uh, this cool section right in the southeastern part of the United States. Very interesting. It's a persistent pattern that that part of the country continues to have. And obviously, it has quite a bit to do with the way the jet stream plays out. Now, you get Nancy in the lawn and grounds area. I know it. You got to get out there. The soils are wet. We're going to talk about that in a second. But everybody, particularly in the lawn world, right, if you're in the the world where you have to, you know, cover 3,000 lawns, you know, our, our Lance Blast just graduated from Cornell at last year, uh, this past fall, and has joined the uh, Teed and Brown Lawn Service in, in Connecticut, applying products to lawns. They're, you know, they're treating, you know, five, 6,000 lawns uh, in a region. It's really difficult to, you know, time it, you know, you can't run out on one day for 6,000 lawns and put everybody's pre-emergent crabgrass now, right? So you have to figure out how to balance what you're going to do. But the rule here, and you're going to hear me talk about this a few more times over the course of the season, the rule of the course of the spring, 
the rule here is it's the earlier you get it on, the earlier it's going to be broken down and get out of here, right? So this is the Growing Degree Day tracker at Michigan State University, right? That uses both growing degree days and temperatures to where we think crabgrass germination or pre-emergent control needs to be applied. Now, I wouldn't do it based exactly on this. I would look at this and then I'd go out and look at some of my areas next to the pavement and some of my areas that are, are, are so Southern exposed, places where the uh, growing season is getting accelerated because it's warming more rapidly, okay? And, and the, best, the best measure of that is soil temperature, right? Get, uh, get a meat thermometer, get out there and get your soil temperature and you can see particularly in the metropolitan New York area and, and that 20% of the area in New Jersey covered in lawns is, is creeping into the 50s as of a few days ago. But as you get further north, you're still in the 20s and 30s and a lot of that is going to be dependent on elevation. But across the region, we're, we're creeping well into the mid 40s, uh, upper 40s, creeping into 50 here in the middle of March. Now, let's talk about rainfall. Right. If we look at the last six months and here you're looking at percent of normal precipitation, right? How much of normal precip did you get? Well, again, you see this really de strong demarcation that cuts through the northeast here where below it, it was fairly dry, except when you get out on the ends here where a bunch of these coastal storms kept coming up and whacking these coastal regions, particularly the ones sticking out here in New York and New England. Most of this region in the Delmarva and the Mid-Atlantic, the Northern Mid-Atlantic, really sort of dodged the bullet. So they were a bit on the dry side, but out here where we are in Western New York, um, you know, the Hudson Valley, the Capital District, well, the Hudson Valley actually pretty dry down here towards the bottom, the Connecticut River Valley pretty dry. And I gotta tell you, this area up here, you know, for the three people that live up there, it really is dry. That's a pretty dry part when you look over the last six months. Now, if you look at the pattern in the last 30 days, it's pretty much continued to be that way, right? Just the last 30 days have continued to keep these areas pretty wet. Total precip in the last week, you're looking at generally about an inch or less. Um, but overall, when you look at how much water's in the system, which is how much rainfall is there minus the evapotranspiration, you can see there's a fair amount of water still in this system, right? Even these areas that are dry continue to have persistent moisture. And I know, Carl, there's this dark cloud over where we live, brother, that just continues to keep us normally wet. But as I indicated here, there's some very interesting things in the most recent drought map. First off, for those northern regions there and right around, you know, southern Jersey, you, know, you got a lot of sand down in this part of Jersey. You got a lot of sand in this part of the state, right? You're along Philadelphia. You got a lot of lawns and high-end stuff going on here. And this is starting to indicate that we're moving into some pretty dry conditions. Now, this, it, it appears we're going to get hit with some pretty good rainfall over the next couple of days. So we'll see how this all pans out come next week when we start talking again. Um, but right now, it looks like we've got some water. It's getting a little dry but it looks like some more water's coming. And of course the national outlook continues to indicate we're gonna be above normal for the next couple of weeks in the rainfall area. All right, let's talk about temperature, right? And, and you know, what happened to plants in the winter and what's happening right now. 
right? You got to remember in the wintertime, grass plants acclimate, right? They got to become accustomed to a new climate. So they get ready for winter and then the sun gets further in the sky, right? And now they're deacclimating, right? They acclimate. Sometimes you see these funky patterns in warm season grasses when the cold air settles over the warm season grass and the part of the plant that's preserved, right? That lower portion of the plant is really all that's going to get going now. And they, you know, the, the, they get hardy and they have the ability to endure these difficult conditions. And now they're breaking out of this, right? Now they're breaking out of this. So how does this happen? And what are we going to see in the next couple of weeks relative to the green up of grasses, right? Because a lot of us in the grounds area, in the lawn and landscape area, it's, it's nearest neighbor effect. Hey, how come that lawn's green and my lawn's not green? You know, that kind of thing. So here's a picture of the Bermuda grass invasion that we're facing at Greenwood Cemetery. And I want to go through some of these aspects of what's impacting how the grass is coming out of dormancy. First off, wherever you've got a fair amount of grass and a fair amount of impervious surface or pavement, that pavement's going to get heated up and transfer that heat into that lawn area. Now, we've identified this to be a significant uh, ex explanation for why the, the grass dies along the edge of the sidewalk. As the sidewalk gets warmer at this time of year and it snows six, 10 inches like it did a few weeks ago, this grass has already begun to break dormancy. And you can see how it's greener along the edge here, break dormancy. And then it's impacted by the icy cold water with the salt in it, right? that then splashes on it. In fact, if you look closely, you can even see what looks like that scalloped splash pattern uh, along the end. And again, this has to do with grasses near pavement getting going quicker. Now, this also is a good place to look for knotweed, good place to look for crabgrass, look, good place to look for weeds that get going sooner because the soil temperature is at 50 degrees at the end of February on these particular locations. Now, the other thing is obviously grasses just have different colors, even when they green up, right? You see these darker green uh, ryegrass or Kentucky bluegrass varieties, they are notoriously slow to green up in the spring, right? They are very, very slow to green up to, in the spring. We've moved Kentucky bluegrass from a real cool season grass to almost a warm season grass. It takes long to get going. And then in the summertime does pretty well. And a lot of that was about developing heat stress tolerance and summer patch resistance, right? One of the things we'll talk about as we get going uh, in the season is the root pathogens that will impact some of these grasses. But for now, if you historically have had darker varieties in your lawns and ground area, you know, lawn and park areas, they might be the slowest to green up. Sometimes what you do in the fall, it's very interesting. I was out in or at Oregon State a couple of weeks ago, uh, looking at the at, out at the Pink Snow Mold Field Day, and they have been doing work with tall fescue, which I got to tell you, I've never heard anybody say a kind word about tall fescue in the Pacific Northwest because ryegrass and annual bluegrass can be so competitive in those environments. There really isn't much need for tall fescue up there. 
But because it's getting warmer and drier up there, they're looking at tall fescue as a grass to stay green in the summer. And one of the things that they found out is these light applications of nitrogen, like a quarter pound of N later in the season. Remember, they don't really get winter. They can grow grass 12 months a year. They'll get a little bit of evapotranspiration in the wintertime. So the plants will take up nitrogen in those climates. Later season nitrogen at lower rates will enhance spring green up, right? There's no doubt about the fact late fall end helps with green up and growth in the spring. The problem is if you put on too much, it leaks into the groundwater, right? So these well-timed late fall end apps, low rates in the October to November period where the plants are still taking up water, moving water into their system, they'll take up that nitrogen and sometimes green up better. Now, the bottom line is you want to get things going in the spring. You got to get the soil warm. And once the soil warms, the microbes get going and they start chomping on that organic matter, right? This is the great beauty of the American lawn of any close cut vegetation is that seething foundry of microbial activity chomping on the organic matter, right? Breaking it down. And as they do that, they release nitrogen. That's it. That's why you don't have to fertilize in the spring generally, because once those soils get going, they're going to, and if they're wet, right? And if they're wet, they're going to really supply the nitrogen that the plant needs. Now, sometimes the best looking areas at this time of year are the wet areas because the water is hit, hit by the sun, is able to hold the heat and transfer it into the soil. And sometimes you see the grass growing in the bottom of a roadside ditch because it's wet, the sun hits it, just like when the sun beats on the pavement and that heat gets transferred into heat, hot moves to cold, right? It's hot moves to cold. So it gets warm and then it penetrates into the soil. Now, of course, you're also gonna get some of this. Now I'm not seeing or hearing widespread reports of these problems, but I have heard people say with some new tall fescue areas, that they do see the little, a bit, little bit of this in the spring. In general, it tends to grow out of it fairly rapidly. Unfortunately, what sometimes fills in there are weeds, right? So you might see these early spring, lesser celandine, chickweed, the winter annuals, right? Here's an example of a chickweed. So direct your attention to our uh, weed ID website maintained by our weed extension program right? Nice and easy. You don't need to know a lot. You can, should be able to look at this and work your way through how to identify a particular grass or weed. And again, back to the idea of pre-emerging crabgrass. Let me remind you, our, our recommendations on our website, our Cornell guidelines, even from many years ago, that haven't been redone now for a number of years, still have this valuable information, right? that if you put down a pre-emergent material early, right? And you're looking for 12 to 15 week control, you're looking for the ease, right? You're looking for the ease. If you're going out with just Bayland or team, uh, here's team, this is Treflan, none of these are gonna be as good as Barricade, as Dithiopyr, as Pendimethyl. So if you're trying to get it down early, um, you know, you're, this is the amount of time you're going to get under ideal conditions. You're likely to see, and this is something we're starting to see more and more of as, as the climate becomes favorable in the fall, right? It was really warm 
very late. So that allows, you know, soil animals, soil, you know, you know, white grub species, the four or five that we have to continue to develop. And actually egg laying gets prolonged, right? It was a bit dry at time. Uh, there was an opportunity for them to expand their egg laying period. So you are going to find multiple instars, right? So when you look for white grub species, right? First instar, second instar, third instar, run in the house instar, right? Take over the house. But what I'm saying is, you know, these are the two stages you need to target for the non-chemical uh, nematode use, right? I don't think we've seen much nematode use in the spring, but these uh, entomophagous nematodes, they're really effective on these lower, these smaller uh, grubs. In general, we don't recommend an insecticide in the spring, typically because they're normally this big. And, and Mike Villani passed away many years ago, published a study once that showed you needed something like 10 times the active ingredient uh, in the labeled rate to kill a third instar grub, right? So get to this website, you spend your time looking at the anal slits of these grubs and make your friends think you're cool or probably make a meme out of this at some point and, and get a handle on these soil insects and try to avoid uh, the indiscriminate insecticide use, right? Because I don't have to tell you about the pollinators. We'll get to that a little bit later. We haven't had a conference call yet with our extension staff across the Northeastern United States. Last year, this was a big topic. So I'm waiting to see if it's going to be a topic again. And of course, we've got some resources that you can access uh, to learn more about that. So Carl, here we are. We got any questions uh, or other things we want to chat about uh, before we wrap up in the next few minutes? Yeah, I think one of the, the notes you're hitting on, Frank, is early in the season, we, we start to see this nice weather. We see certain areas greening up. We want to do something. But if I'm correct in, in, in hearing what you're saying, you're saying really it's a great time to observe some of these uh, microclimate differences, uh, yard to yard, or even spaces within your yard. Um, is that the thing you'd say, you know, first thing before you start touching a piece of equipment or, or thinking about fertilizer or whatever, would you say that's the first thing people should do when, when they're getting out on lawn service? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, th that's a very good point, Carl, because here's what I can tell you. You know, in my years in the landscape business, albeit it was in the 70s, uh, and what I watch around campus and, and when I get to, you know, communities where landscape crews and grounds crews are out, generally this is a go around pick up stick time. This is like it could snow a foot again up here, right? And, you know, down in New York, I mean, a lot of places are still wet. So I think everybody's really mindful of, you know, not getting on the lawns too much, um, getting around with a rake picking up some sticks, raking up some areas. I like patching in some seed. You know, it's not a bad time to go around. But your point about observing, looking at your microclimate differences, and I brought that up with the south expansion, you know, the southern facing areas near the pavements, right? The unique microclimates that make up and characterize the urban environment mm -hmm. where most of our grass is, right? I mean, listen, we're in Ithaca. It's the middle of friggin' nowhere, but we got a little city here. There's mm -hmm. pavement everywhere on the several hundred acres that make up this campus. So it literally is an urban environment. So you're exactly right, Carl. Look for these things because consider, hmm, 
I may get crabgrass there sooner. Maybe I should get out there now and just expect to spot treat if I get any escapes later in the year, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of saying, I'm going to blanket everything and then it wears out and you're like, I got to blanket it again or the whole place is full of crabgrass. You know what I mean? I, I think the, the site differences that we're beginning to identify, if you've got the resources to do it, get out there, look around, clean up, make some notes, same on the grounds. My experience is that's what's happening. It would be really good. You know, you and I should probably think about what is a spring checklist that we'd send our crews out with? What are the kinds of things they should be looking at? Where are your south facing slopes? How, what have you noticed? Just looking at green up, have a place to take a picture and say, here's what it looks like on this date in 2022. You do that every four, every year for five years, you're going to have a pretty good sense and a good story to tell. A lot of what I've realized, Carl, is all of these folks working in lawns and grounds got to get better all the time at talking to people about what they do because they see them, because they see them. Yeah. And, and the one thing I'll, I'll note, Frank, is you, you talk about cleaning up and, and certainly in the lawn area, there's, there's probably excess. I'm looking at my own lawn right now. There's leaves hanging around. There's sticks that fall down. Um, but New York State IPM uh, just tweeted out, and Joellen, uh, I know you're here with us live, but in garden beds, if you see it kind of looking raggedy, that's actually okay for pollinator habitat early in the year. So if you're getting the itch to maybe clean up those areas, but you like to have some pollinators around, that's some good habitat for them to kind of hang out in early in the season. So, you know, don't get too quick to start cleaning up those garden beds and start prepping them because there's, there's some good space in there for uh, the beneficial bugs around us. Um, well, you know, that's interesting because... Um, I almost stuck the slide in about leaf litter and ticks. Mm -hmm. You know, Carl, it's double-edged sword. I'm so glad we have Joellen uh, here. And, you know, of course, we're at our 30 minutes, but we're mm -hmm. going to take this up again because it is a conundrum, right? Along yeah. wooded edges that might be more of those kinds of habitats, we might want to be careful. But maybe in places where they're pollinators, uh, we might think of these things strategically. This is really the important uh, what did what did she say? It depends, right? It the depends. great extension answer, right? All right. Yeah. So, Carl, we're at ten thirty. Any last thoughts before we get out of here? I think that's a great way to wrap it up. A bit of an ominous ending. Ticks, you know the danger word. Ticks. Dun, we'll be back. Dun, dun, we'll be back. So, uh, thanks everyone for joining this week. We'll be back next Thursday with our golf show and and Friday with a sports turf show. Take care. This has been a production of Cornell University on the web at cornell.edu.